Thank you very much for the special music, The Lord is My Light and My Salvation. Of course, part of the words were from King David, One thing I seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord. That should be one of our goals as well. Well, warm greetings to all our brethren around the world. Thank you for your prayers and for your support of God's work. We're looking forward to next weekend, December to Remember, as the uh, title Jim Meredith has given it. It'll be the 20th anniversary of Global Living. And this coming Thursday, December 20th, will be the 60th anniversary of Dr. Roderick Meredith's ordination as an evangelist. So we appreciate those 60 years of faithfulness, of service, and of dedication, having gone through many different trials and testing, and still giving us the leadership that we need in God's church in this end time. So we're looking forward to uh, next weekend. And, uh, of course, now we're nearing the end of the calendar year, 2012. And, in fact, next Friday, December 21st, ends the Mayan calendar, as some of you know. Uh, the movie 2012 graphically depicted cataclysmic disasters that would supposedly follow December 21st. Now, last week's uh, tomorrow's telecast, Prophets and Pretenders, by Mr. Wallace Smith, presented the biblical reality. One preacher predicted last year that the rapture would occur on May 21st, 2011. And when that didn't happen, he stated the following. We have learned that except for something somewhat different understanding of the world's earthquake and rapture and catching up, no other past teaching of Judgment Day or the end of the world have been changed. The timeline, the certainty, of the proofs, and the signs are all precisely the same. No other past teaching has been changed or modified. And this was after May 21st when the rapture did not take place. But what did happen? On May 21st, Christ did come spiritually, even though no one saw him, to put all of the unsaved throughout the world into judgment. But that universal judgment would not be physically seen until the last day of the five-month judgment period on October 21st, 2011. So what he said was going to happen on October 21st, 2011, was the following. Thus we can be sure that the whole world, with the exception of those who are presently saved, the elect, are under the judgment of God and will be annihilated together with the whole physical world on October 21st, 2011. So the whole world was to be annihilated on the last day of the present five-month period. On that day, the true believers, the elect, will be raptured. We must remember that only God knows his elect are that who they are prior to May 21st. Well, of course, that did not happen, and he actually apologized later. The rapture didn't happen. And, uh, of course, Jesus predicted that there would be false Christs and there would be false prophets. If you turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter, Matthew 24, we have to be on guard. Matthew 24 and verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And we know that many of our, or many, or at least some samples of Church of God people have been deceived. They've gone off on their own tangent, gone out to the twigs of the tree rather than sticking to the trunk of the tree. So Jesus predicted there would be false Christs and false prophets. We look back at verse 11. 
then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Yes, terrible tragedies, as we heard the announcements already, and cited by Satan, continue to occur all over the world. And from oppressive dictators to genocide, and from terrorism to mass murders. And the tragedy, the shooting in Connecticut yesterday when a gunman killed 20 school children, I believe they were from ages 5 to 10, one report gave, and six school teachers and the gunman himself, very tragic. Mr. Wallace Smith wrote a Tomorrow's World commentary, Heart-Rending Tragedy in Connecticut. He said, Many who were listening Friday morning to the news of the mind-numbing slaughter of innocents at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, are still dazed, bewildered, and in grief. Twenty small children lay dead, felled by a coward's bullets, with eight adults, including the shooter and his mother, dead beside them. What has become of our society that people commit such abominable acts? How has this become the state of affairs? Mr. Smith cites the shooting three days earlier in Oregon at a, a mall where a man killed two people and himself. And then earlier this year, many of you know, a masked gunman entered a theater in Colorado and killed 12 and injured 58. So Mr. Smith concludes, There is no hope for this world until the arrival of the kingdom of God, the time when Jesus Christ returns to govern on this earth, being the peace only available through the intervention of the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Until the world willingly comes under the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it will continue to experience the shed blood of its sons and daughters. May God forgive each of us, Mr. Smith concludes, May God forgive each of us individually, for any way, however small, we may have contributed to a culture that sees human life as so being worth little. May his kingdom come soon, and may God of all comfort tend to those tragically bereaved and heartbroken in Connecticut. And I hope you, as well as I and all of us, sigh and cry for the abominations that are committed. That's Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. God will protect those who have that attitude, who can identify with the pain and suffering of this tragic world. And we involuntarily cry out time and time again, Your kingdom come! I don't know how many times a day, or at least I don't think a day goes by, when I don't somehow, after reading news, say, Your kingdom come! We need God's kingdom to come. But lawlessness continues to abound, as we read here in the Scriptures. And as it does all over the world, false prophets will predict erroneous future scenarios. But can we, as God's people, know the future? And how do we know the future? We know the future because God has a plan revealed through His holy days and the annual festivals. We know the Passover leading then to Pentecost, the Days of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and then Trumpets and Atonement, and then the annual festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. God has a wonderful plan and he reveals the future through that plan. We also know the future through the major sources of Bible prophecy, and one of those, of course, is the book of Revelation. Again, I want to congratulate 
uh, those of you who completed your reading of the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation. Uh, we can't cover the whole book in one sermon. It would require several sermons to cover the book of Revelation. But Living University, by the way, is offering a course this spring semester that will include the book of Revelation. It's Theology 416, titled General Epistles and Revelation. The prerequisite is Theology 136, Dr. Meredith's uh, class, Life, Ministry, and the Teachings of Jesus. So some of you may want to consider taking that class. Let's turn to Revelation, the first chapter, Revelation 1. And if you believe God's Word, you know that you will and have received a blessing for having read the Scriptures in Revelation, and also that you keep those things that are in it, for the time is near. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, not to hide, but to reveal, to explain, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. John was and Patmos, he was a Roman prisoner, and God gave him this revelation as a testimony, and it wrote it down for us today. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. The book of Revelation gives us the reality of our world and of the future, and those who neglect it, Neglect facing reality. And when we neglect facing reality, we are susceptible and vulnerable to all kinds of deceptions. We may even deceive ourselves if we're not careful. But this is to show his servants, and we all, brethren, are God's servants. So God reveals to us wonderful truth of his plan for the future. What message in the book applies to you personally? The title of the sermon today is Revelation and You. So we're not going to cover all the various prophecies in it, but we want to cover those elements that directly relate to you and me. Those five elements will be our calling, our mission, our destiny, our spiritual growth, and our focus. Years ago, when God was calling me, I was attending a Protestant church in Meriden, Connecticut, and uh, I was curious about the book of Revelation. So, obviously, my pastor should know something about it. So, I asked him to explain it, and he gave me some very unsatisfactory answer. And the desire to understand Revelation just continued until later on I heard a program called The World Tomorrow, given by Herbert W. Armstrong. And he offered a couple booklets, the key, the key to the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation unveiled at last. And I was excited about it. I read those booklets, and I, this makes it plain. I can understand the book of Revelation. And then I also got another booklet along with it, The True History of the True Church. And I was so excited, I'm going to share this with my pastor. He's going to be very happy to read these booklets on the true church and the book of Revelation. So I naively gave them to my pastor, and he said, Well, Dick, he said, Well, I'll, 
I'll read these booklets if you read this commentary on the book of Revelation. Okay, it's a deal. I'll take your commentary, which I believe it was St. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. And I started reading through it, and I got up to Revelation 6, and it said, The first horseman of the apocalypse is Jesus Christ. Well, I knew right then I didn't need to read the commentary anymore. It was wrong. Uh, the Bible interprets the Bible. We understand the first horseman of the apocalypse is false Christ, not the true Christ. So I wanted to get my booklets back, and I, I went to the pastor, and uh, I said, uh, what did you think about these booklets on Revelation? Talking about World War III, talking about our ultimate destiny in the New Jerusalem, and he said, well, it's all very interesting, but it leaves out the poetry. And I kind of shook my head, leaves out the poetry. Well, of course, what he was thinking of, this is apocalyptic literature and filled with symbolism. He could not get it. He could get the truth of the world cataclysm coming with Armageddon, the battle of the great day of God Almighty coming. He just couldn't get it. It was on a surface of just, well, this is, this is interesting poetic literature. Well, anyway, and then he went on to say, well, you can't believe the Bible, all the Bible anyway. My, my jaw further dropped open and realized, no, these pastors and preachers of churches don't even believe the Bible is the authoritative word and the revealed word of God Almighty. But God has given us the truth and and a summary of uh, the stories of uh, Revelation uh, are brought out here in the booklet that we have, and I hope all of you do have uh, Mr. John O'Gwen's booklet, Revelation, uh, The Mystery Unveiled. Let me just read an excerpt from it, uh, key number three on page five, the purpose of Revelation. Modern scholars disagree about what they consider the purpose of the book of Revelation. However, careful Bible students we'll see that the book's very first verse describes its purpose. And Jesus Christ gave revelation to John that he might show the servants of God the things which must, that must shortly come to pass. Revelation 1.1. It is intending as a revealing or an unveiling of the future. It was given so that God's true servants could understand where world events are headed and could know what the future holds. It was a message of encouragement to God's people showing that even in the midst of turmoil and persecution, they need not become anxious about the future. God the Father allowed Christ to unveil through John the final culmination of future world events. Therefore, it is wrong to think that Revelation is merely a vague allegory about good versus evil, or that it simply describes the historical circumstances and difficulties faced by first-century Christians. The entire book must be understood as laying out the future in advance. Recently, I believe, it was on the History Channel. I saw a background story on Revelation, and one of the commentators saying, the book of Revelation was just for first-century people. It's sad to see that so many in the world are so blinded to the truth of Revelation. We have further literature, of course, on it, Armageddon and Beyond, the booklet, The Beast of Revelation, The Middle East in Prophecy, so I hope that you're reading or have read those booklets. We've had recent telecasts, Tomorrow's World Telecast, November 11th, uh, Revelation Unveiled. Uh, coming up in January, we have uh, Mr. Smith's program. We just reviewed uh, The Four Horsemen Ride. 
and the soon-coming Utopia, Dr. Meredith is taped. We'll have that program coming up in January or February. The prophesied day of the Lord uh, in March or April, world war in the Middle East. Will the beast rise in Europe? So I hope that you're watching those programs because Christ tells us to watch and pray always. You may be worthy to escape those things that are coming to pass. I want to then, for the remainder of the sermon, cover five elements of Revelation and you. The first is our calling. Let's turn to Revelation. We're already there in Revelation 1. Verse 6. Well, let's start verse 5. Well, let's start with verse 4. <laughs> Sorry about that. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn. There are others who will be born from the dead. And the ruler over the, over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his blood. Now, one of the sub-themes I'll mention from time to time is the matter of Christ's sacrifice throughout the book of Revelation. Three months, a little over three months from now, we'll be observing the New Testament Passover on March 24th, that night, Sunday night. So we may be thinking ahead as to the very meaning and depth and memorial of the death of Christ and his sacrifice. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Yes, our calling is to become kings and priests. In a sermon two weeks ago, Dr. Meredith and the blessings of God's government described our calling as kings and priests. We are called to be a kingdom of priests as well. That was offered to the Israelites back at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. We'll turn back there briefly. You hold your place in Revelation. We'll be reading from Revelation throughout the sermon. But Exodus, the 19th chapter, shows that Israel was called to become a kingdom of priests. Revelation 19 and verse, I'm sorry, Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, God says, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. This reminds me of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the inhabitants thereof. And you shall be to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel, God told Moses. Israel failed in its mission. And so God then called us, the Israel of God, to fulfill that mission as a kingdom of priests, as kings and priests. And that's Galatians 6, verse 16, that we are called now as the Israel of God. So how committed are you, is my question, to fulfill that calling? We must be completely committed if we are going to join Christ in the resurrection, in the wedding, and to see our Father in heaven face to face, and then come back with Christ as his army in the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Let's turn to Revelation, the 17th chapter, Revelation 17. How committed are you to that calling? Revelation 17, starting with verse 11. 
The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going into perdition. There was the original Roman Empire and then seven revivals. So there were a total of eight in the uh, prophecy. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And so we have programs coming up on uh, telecast in the spring on the beast. Verse 13, these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. But verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him, who are with him? Those who are called, chosen, and faithful. How committed are you? Will you be in that number of those who are called, chosen, and faithful? Will you remain faithful? And are you spiritually Philadelphian? We might ask as well. Let's turn to Revelation, the third chapter. Revelation 3. This all has to do with our calling as kings and priests and being with Christ as called, chosen, and faithful. Revelation, the third chapter, verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly, hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. So God calls us to hold fast. We have uh, sermon number 447 uh, by that title in our sermon library uh, called Hold Fast, actually the title of sermon number 447. The book of Revelation clearly reveals our calling, that we are to hold fast that no one may take our crown. We're called to become kings and to be priests. He who overcomes, verse 12, I will make a pillar, make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write up on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the book of Revelation reveals our calling, and of course other scriptures do in the rest of the Bible. Uh, we are now in training to rule the world with Christ, under Christ, as kings and priests. And as his servants, he reveals the future. And as faithful servants, we will be with him when he comes to conquer all the nations that are fighting against him, as we just read in Revelation 17. So the first area we just covered briefly is that of our calling. Next, look at our mission, Revelation 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, he is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. The Apostle Paul talked about an open door, preaching the gospel. And so Christ opens doors for us even in this end time. And we're very thankful for the responses we've been getting on Word Network, Ion Network, uh, WGN, and uh, other networks, over a thousand from each of these networks uh, every Sunday, or every weekend, I should say. And we're very thankful for those open doors. And sometimes Christ closes doors. But if he closes one door, he'll open another door. And thank you for your prayers for more open doors as the gospel goes out this end time. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a, have a little strength, 
Yes, we have little strength. We're not the great and mighty noble of the world. But notice the characteristics of the Philadelphians. Have kept my word. You have a little strength. You have kept my word. You're responsive. You're obedient. You're letting God's laws being written on your hearts and minds, and you're living that way of love, of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first four of the Ten Commandments, and loving your neighbors yourself, the last six of those Ten Commandments, and have not denied my name. God has many names. He is the Creator, the Lawgiver, the Lifegiver, the Sustainer, the Designer, the One who fulfills prophecy, the One who answers prayers. He's the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, the Father of spirits. He's the Father of mercies, and He's the Father of spirits, and He rules supreme. And, of course, all the many names of Christ as well. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. He's the resurrection and the life, uh, John 11. He's wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verse 6. So Christ has these many names, King of kings and Lord of lords, and we'll be hearing more about that a little later. We've not denied his name. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Jesus challenged some of his audience. No, we don't deny his name because we're responsive, we're obedient. We follow his directions and instructions, not only in the letter, but also in the Spirit. The mission is that he has set us an open door, and we're called to fulfill that mission, as it brings out in Mark 16:15, and also Matthew 28, uh, verse 19. Let's turn to Revelation, the 22nd chapter. Revelation, the 22nd chapter. Again, a principle that is very important. Revelation 22 and verse 12. And behold, I am coming quickly. Do you find that expression two or three times here in the book of Revelation? He's coming quickly. He's coming suddenly. It's going to be sooner than we think. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So God is going to give us rewards depending on our works. Salvation is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. You can never, ever earn that. But what you're going to be doing for all eternity depends on our support, our involvement, our works, our serving God and Christ and the church and in so many different ways. And um, I hope you'll be getting Dr. Meredith's co-worker letter. It's the uh, no, December 11th. Uh, it was mailed this week. Uh, probably will arrive in your mailbox today or perhaps on Monday. But he wrote in that uh, co-worker letter, if I can find it here for a moment, about God's work. God is a genuine work that he is using to warn this world, Dr. Meredith writes, of what is about to happen. In God's mercy, you have had your minds and hearts open to be given a part in this work. You and I will be rewarded forever if we go all out in preparing for the coming government of the living Jesus Christ, who finally will return to this earth when God's seventh angel proclaims, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, Revelation 11:15. 15. 
At that time, dear brethren and friends, deep within our very souls, we will be infinitely grateful that we have had a vital part in helping this world understand the meaning of these coming horrifying events, and, as God calls some, also a part in bringing many thousands of human beings into God's kingdom in the first resurrection, the better resurrection, Hebrews 11, verse 35. May God help all of us go forward with zeal in doing our part in the greatest activity on earth today, directly preparing for the return of the King of Kings. Yes, God is going to reward us according to our work. And most of us, I believe here in this congregation and hopefully around the world, have their hearts in God's work and are supporting it wholeheartedly. And we're very thankful for the support. God is blessing us with an income year to date of about 7.6%. And we thank you very much for that. We have a mission, you and I, and he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. He says in, that's uh, Acts 1, verse 8, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. So we must faithfully fulfill that mission. And what will be your reward? Would you just say, well, I, I'm not uh, going to have any reward. I just sat there watching television, so uh, I'm not going to do much. Uh, but nonetheless, it could be over cities. It could be over nations, as it says in Revelation 2.26. He that overcomes will I grant to rule over the nations. And, of course, he says, I come quickly in Revelation 22.12, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Well, we thank you very much for your loyalty and support of the mission that God has given you and revealed here, of course, in Revelation, as Christ opens up more doors for the gospel. A third element in Revelation and our life and destiny and personal relationship with uh, and calling is our destiny. And yes, some of these overlap, our calling and destiny overlap. We already saw that we're called to become kings and priests. Turn back to Isaiah, the 30th chapter. Those of you who know that priests are teachers, and we've read this at the Feast of Tabernacles many times, but it's good to recall our destiny as teachers and kings. Isaiah 30, verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears, you, hears it, he will answer you. We had... Uh, the telecast this weekend is Answered Prayer by Dr. Meredith. It's seen there on the church bulletin cover. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. As spirit beings, we'll be able to manifest ourselves as physical human beings, just the way Jesus did. And he was flesh and bone. He went to actually ate fish as you read in the Scriptures, after his resurrection, but he's also glorified, immortalized. Your, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or when you turn to the left. So now we are learning that way of life in order to teach the world the way to peace, which the world does not know. Our destiny is to be kings and priests and teachers and judges. 
But we are also called to be the wife and the bride of the Lamb. Let's turn to Revelation 19 and verse 6. Revelation 19 and verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And that's a part of Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. We'll be uh, hearing an excerpt from that later. Let us be glad and rejoice, verse 7, and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then we see later on, of course, in verse 14, the armies in heaven. They were armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen. These are the ones who have married Christ, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And so we will be a part of God's army at the very end. And of course, at the end of that army, that conflict, that battle, um, the world's armies lose, as we read in verse 19 through 21, and the beast and the false prophet are captured and thrown into a lake burning with brimstone, the lake of fire. So we will be ready, and I pray that all of us are actively preparing to marry Christ as the bride. We will be one with Him and one with the Father, as Jesus prayed in John 17, that, Father, that they might be one as you and I are one. That's spiritually intimate. It's a oneness, a unity, a symbolic of a wedding. Let's turn back to, or a marriage. Turn back to Matthew 25, 1. Matthew 25, 1. Or I should say it in the reverse way, that... A marriage is one flesh, the two become one flesh. And we see it also, spiritually speaking, with the Lord one spirit. We'll read that later. But Matthew, the 25th chapter, we have the uh, parable of the wise and foolish virgins. I won't read through the whole scripture, but just to emphasize the matter that at midnight a cry was heard. Verse 6, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And we've heard that warning. Mr. Herbert Armstrong said years ago that this was a clarion call, that we need to get ready. Christ is coming back. Get ready. And it got my attention. But the foolish, the virgins uh, rose and trimmed their lamps. The, fir the virgins, the foolish ones, said, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. No, the symbolism here is that of God's Spirit. And are you renewing God's Spirit daily, every day? But the wise answer said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. The wedding takes place, at least indicated by this parable, fairly quickly. What did they do? They went with him into the wedding. And that takes place, of course, at the seventh trumpet when we're resurrected, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, 
And this mortal must put on immortality. And that takes place at the last trumpet. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, you can read that. So they went in with him to the wedding. And then what happens? Revelation, the 15th chapter. They are standing on the sea of glass, those who are overcomers. And the sea of glass, as we've shown before in Revelation, the 4th chapter, is at God's throne in heaven. Verse 2, Revelation 15. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. You pray that you will be an overcomer. That's one of the lessons of the days of unleavened bread. And throughout Revelation 2 and 3, as we'll see a little later, he that overcomes... It's not that you're just in the Philadelphian era or that you're in the Laodicean era or you might think yourself as a, a Philadelphian. No, you must also be a, an overcoming Philadelphia. You must be an, a Philadelphian overcomer is what you must be. And that's part of our daily purpose in life, overcoming daily with the spirit sword, that uh, overcoming daily with the spirit sword. Standing on the promises of God. Thank you. I couldn't remember what, what hymn that was. just came back to mind. So we overcome daily with the Spirit sword, God's Word. So we're standing on that sea of glass. And then, of course, the seven plagues, they're, they're rejoicing by singing, of course, the song of Moses. And uh, as it goes on to say, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So they're rejoicing. So we rejoice. We've gone into the wedding with Christ. And then coming back, Revelation 19, just before Satan is put away on the Day of Atonement. I won't go through that again uh, because of time. But uh, again, you can read the, the uh, article in the uh, September-October Living Church News. The saints will stand on the throne before God's throne in heaven. You can read that article and get the full sequence of events. What I'm trying to emphasize here now is the, the emphasis that we have in our destiny as being kings and priests and being the wife, the bride of Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, to see that intimate relationship that we have with the Lamb, with the Savior of the world. He's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, is brought out in the book of Revelation. He's the Lamb, and he's also the Lion. 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, shows us our spiritual relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, the Bible shows the intimate relationship that we have with God and with Christ, and particularly the church becomes the bride and the wife of Christ. The book of Revelation describes our destiny. The church is called to marry Christ. But we are also born as part of our destiny as God's glorified, immortalized children. I've quoted 1 Corinthians 15 off the top of my head, but let's go back here. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, 
that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, my wife and I were just listening to an old radio broadcast of uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong and how emphasizing how some people believe that the church is the kingdom. And he said, well, are you flesh and blood? Well, then you have not inherited the kingdom. We are heirs of the kingdom, but the Scripture plainly says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom. If you're flesh and blood, you have not entered into the kingdom. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Yes, it's at the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, on the day of trumpets. So the day of the Lord is one year, and you can read about that again in our Revelation booklet about the day of the Lord. It begins on the Feast of Trumpets and ends on the Feast of Trumpets. It's one year. So we have the last trumpet, For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has been put on corruption, on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So we look forward to that time when we will be born into the family of God. We will see God face to face. As, uh, again, in that article I mentioned, uh, September, October 2012, the saints will stand before God's throne in heaven. In the sermon I gave here just a few weeks ago on persevere in prayer, I gave three examples of human beings seeing God face to face. Who was that? Moses spoke to God. Exodus 33.10. Now, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord... The Yahweh, the Eternal, appeared to him, spoke to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. So Moses, a human being, saw God, that was the God of the Old Testament, the one who became Jesus Christ, face to face. Who else? Abraham negotiated with the Lord, Genesis, the 18th chapter. Verse 1, then the, the Lord appeared to him. The Eternal appeared to him by the terebinth trees of memory as he, Abraham, was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Genesis 18.33, so the Eternal, the Lord, went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So here Abraham actually spent, however many Hours with him as Abraham prepared the fatted calf for him. And they had a meal together, talked together, negotiated, as I pointed out in that sermon. And who else saw the Lord face to face? Jacob wrestled with the Lord. Genesis thirty-two thirty, And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel for... I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So here are human beings who saw the God of the Old Testament, the one who became Jesus Christ, face to face.
The physical human being saw God face to face. How much more will God's newly born glorified children see our Father in heaven? We've uh, had this read in the sermonette, but turn back to Revelation 21 and verse 7. Revelation 21 and verse 7. We will inherit all things. He who overcomes, Revelation 21, verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. As we pointed out before, actually, in Hebrews, the second chapter, the Hebrew is ta, panta, meaning the all, literally. And the lexicons point out that means everything seen and unseen. Although the spirit animals and spirit beings that you read about in Revelation, the fourth chapter, we don't see them now. But when we are born into God's family, we'll see all those spirit beings. We will inherit all things. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Back in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Of course, this is at the end of the thousand years. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. There are several powerful messages in that, that uh, section. One, of course, is that as the bride of Christ, the wife of Christ, we will be living in the new Jerusalem when it comes down from God out of heaven. Others who come later will be on the earth, but they will not be, the bride of Christ will not be in the new Jerusalem. It says the kings, of course, of the earth bring their treasures uh, into that city. As it says in verses uh, 25 through 27. So we will be close to God the Father. We'll be close to Christ. We will be the Lamb's wife. And then, of course, chapter 22 and eventually, those who come along later, who are not the Lamb's wife, will also see God the Father face to face. Revelation 22, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, for the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and a servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They shall. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The book of Revelation shows our calling, our mission, and our destiny. We now have an intimate relationship with God the Father and Christ the Lamb of God, now, in this life. But how much more will we have an intimate relationship after we marry Christ and when we're born as glorified children of God Almighty? We will be one with Him. And thank God that we will see our Father face to face. And thank God for the coming marriage of the Lamb to those who are called, chosen, and faithful. We pray that will be everyone here today. We just discussed our destiny. 
Let's go on to a fourth element in Revelation, and that's our spiritual growth. Another message of Revelation to all of us is the need to grow spiritually. And that lesson is in Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2 and 3. We'll just take a look at a couple of the examples and uh, samples. They give us a special way to examine ourselves spiritually. And Christ gives the strengths and weaknesses of the seven churches. And he says in Revelation 2, verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Dr. Douglas Winnale's article, Seven Lessons from Seven Churches, appeared in the Living Church News, January, February, 2006. So we can learn lessons from the seven churches. Uh, Dr. Douglas Winnale writes, quote, The letters to the seven churches and the seven church eras they represent contain important lessons. Those lessons were meant for the churches in the first century and for Christians down through the ages, but they are vital for Christians today, individuals living at the end of the age in the Laodicean era. Yes, we are in the Laodicean era. And uh, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in um, The Incredible Human Potential, uh, and there are some churches of God today who say, no, that, that was just historic. It uh, doesn't apply to us today. These are not errors. This is what Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in The Incredible Human Potential, and that is page 158. Quote, These seven messages do apply to seven successive church eras, but they also apply to the whole church through all eras. In other words, the Ephesus characteristics dominated in the first era, and the Laodicean will dominate in the last. But some of these characteristics are found in every era. The messages apply to the whole church, and so I have said and written for more than 50 years. But certain characteristics predominate in the various eras. And so we need to examine ourselves, and I need to examine myself when I read the message to the Ephesus church. It says, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, verse 3, and have not become weary. Verse 4, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so, again, we have to examine ourselves and ask personally, have I lost or have I diminished my first love? I need to, if I have, I need to follow Christ's correction. I need to grow spiritually. I need to change. I need to become zealous and renew that first love that I once had for God's truth and for His work. Then we have... Of course, I try to remember them. ESP is, is a kind of a, a, a mnemonic, is it, to remember Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and then you have Thyatira, and then Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicean. So I hope all of you can name those without uh, looking at the Scriptures. But nonetheless, uh, we need to think of the lessons from each of them. The, in my King James Bible here, 
chapter 3 as a heading, the dead church. And then it has the faithful church. Then it has the lukewarm church as the, the heading. So we have to examine ourselves and ask, am I Laodicean? Or should I? What is the lesson for those who are in Laodicean? The uh, latest Living Church News, which we just got in the mail a couple days ago, January, February 2003, Dr. Meredith's editorial is titled, Do Not Be Laodicean. So you can, again, tie that into this sermon. And uh, as he writes, the vast majority of God's people are evidently Laodicean at the end of this age. When we truly understand Revelation 3, this is the clear indication and those who are Laodicean will have to be chastised during the fire of the coming great tribulation. Revelation 3, verses 18 through 19. How can you personally avoid this fate and be among those whom God will protect from this approaching hour of trial? Number 10, uh, verse 10. So again, uh, as we look through the church here, we find that the Philadelphian church, as we read earlier, have not denied God's name. They have an open door. They have a little strength. Philadelphia <clears throat> has to do with brotherly love. And we've seen that in a local congregation. We've uh, recently got an email here addressed to uh, Dr. Wernail, <clears throat> an encouraging message from Nigeria that just shows that brotherly love. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Rod King, Mr. Um, Reese Ellis and his wife were in Nigeria last weekend for the TWSP. Dr. Ken Ogundaji was ordained as a, an elder at that time. And in Lagos, Nigeria, four French-speaking men traveled from the country of Benin uh, to Lagos. And one of them was baptized. And on return to their country, one of the men wrote Dr. Akin, writing in French, and uh, this is translated into... English. I'll just read an excerpt, but it just shows the Philadelphian love that was even there in Nigeria. Dear Dr. Akin, we all four returned Monday to Kotonou, which is in Benin. I want to thank you very much for everything you have done for us. All my life I have never been treated like you and all the other brethren and sisters have treated us. I felt like in a dream. But the literatures I studied, I was very convinced that the living church of God was the continuation of the work of Christ and his apostles. When I saw what I saw in Lagos, I learned more from you. It was just great to see people that I'd never seen in my life treat me like their blood brother. What struck me the most is still the warm welcome of Mr. King, Mr. and Mrs. Ellis reserved to us. I think I will never forget these moments with you. I so want to stay with you forever, and I hope that God will allow me more than ever because I feel I need to move forward in the knowledge and practice of the truth. We need to continue to make sure that we are loving, that we are warm, that we are welcoming, and particularly with the December to Remember weekend, with all the guests coming in next weekend, we want to again show all of our guests and visitors next week that love. So the messages of Revelation 2 and 3 are for each of us today. So, brethren, read through those chapters with the perspective of examining yourself. Have I lost my first love? Am I denying the name of Christ? Am I keeping His Word?
<clears throat> by becoming lukewarm, is the warning to the Laodiceans. So examine yourself and be very honest with yourself. I remember giving an assignment to a church decades ago and doing a self-examination paper and what I am, and I said, I you know, want this paper back by such and such a date. And this one man didn't hand it in. And he said, well, what should I do, Mr. Ames? I said, well, what you need to do is write your paper and start off the first sentence, I am Laodicean. So <laughs> I think he got the message and uh, made some good changes and, and uh, matured spiritually. The fifth section that we want to briefly discuss is our focus as I brought out in the recent sermon on distractions, deceptions, and detours, we can be thrown off the path of life. Our social networking, media intense surfing, and busy life can distract us from our goal. And what is our focus? We know Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But one focus I want to point out in the book of Revelation is the reference to Christ as the Lamb. And you may want to do a Bible study and just go through with a highlighter throughout all of the 22 books of Revelation. There are 24 references to the Lamb in the book of Revelation. And, of course, what does that mean, the Lamb? Well, let's turn to John, the first chapter, John 1. You know that ever since the Exodus that the Lamb was symbolic of Christ, and the blood over the doorposts protected the family inside from the death angel. So John, the first chapter, remember John the Baptist pointed, he was witnessing to who the true Messiah was, who the Anointed One was. John 1, verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may want to think about that. Who takes away the sin of the world. Only He, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, could do that. Verse 35. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Turn back to Revelation, the first chapter, Revelation 1. So baptized members will observe the New Testament Passover on Sunday night, March 24th, 2013. And we also realize, of course, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We remember that sacrifice, and I said earlier that as you read through the book of Revelation, you find those references to Christ's shed blood, as we read earlier here in uh, verse 4 and verse 5 of Revelation 1. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we focus on Jesus coming to this earth is king of kings, but he's also the lamb of God. Several of our church members here locally uh, attended the Charlotte Symphony and uh, uh, oratorio cho uh, choral, uh, choral group this past week. And, uh, of course, they heard the Handel's Messiah. 
And I'd like at this time to uh, actually play an excerpt from that. It's the Hallelujah Chorus is about four minutes long, but I want to play about two minutes of it. And you can read along with it. Uh, local congregations who get this uh, sermon later will have to take their own recording of uh, the Hallelujah Chorus if they want to play it, or they can just read the two scriptural references, uh, Revelation 19.6, Revelation 19.16, and then Revelation 11.15. Because Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's Revelation 19.6. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. That's Revelation 11.15. And then King of Kings, Lord of Lords, that's Revelation 19.16. So let's I hear excerpts now from the Hallelujah Chorus.
You can imagine just what it's going to be like when those overcomers on the sea of glass are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and hear all those angelic voices just going to be absolutely glorious. How many of you have actually sung the Messiah, Handel's Messiah? So I'll see of you. Oh, well, about, uh, about 45 of you. Very good. Glad you're able to do that. Let's turn to Revelation, the fifth chapter. One of the most inspiring oratorios in uh, Handel's Messiah is Worthy is the Lamb, which is the last section. And we heard the whole uh, performance in the uh, Ambassador Auditorium one time. I think it was over about three and a half hours because every, every uh, element was sung. And it builds up and builds up to the very last presentation, which is Worthy is the Lamb. Revelation 5, and verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The particular section lasts for about 8 minutes and 39 seconds. We've just taken a couple uh, minutes of excerpts from it. The last three minutes have this glorious amen, and it just keeps building up and building up and building up, and then it just pauses for a moment, and then starts with the final amen. My wife and I have listened to this over the years, and I just uh, it's hard to not shed tears when we hear this, the whole section of Worthy is a Lamb. But let's go ahead and uh, play uh, those two minutes of Worthy as the Lamb now.
Our focus needs to be on the kingdom of God and on the Savior who will bring us into the kingdom of God. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews 12. And hold. Well, we'll come back to Revelation, the last chapter here, but Hebrews 12. What is your focus? Do you have a focus, or are you just wandering around? Hebrews 12, you're all familiar with, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these faithful men and women of chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Yes, the weight and sin that so easily ensnares us, those distractions. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And what is our focus? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he had vision, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Turn back to Revelation, the 22nd chapter. No, we need vision for the future, and the book of Revelation gives us that vision. You know Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no revelation. The people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. The whole Bible, of course, is God's revelation to us, and we've looked at one portion of that today in the book of Revelation. Dr. Meredith has stated the Holy Bible, the Scriptures, are the mind of God. And he also had that quotable quote years ago that I still remember, saturate your mind with the Word of God. We know the world will not end next Friday, December 21st, 2012. We know that because God has given us as servants the revelation of things which must shortly take place, as we read in Revelation 1, verse 1. Today's sermon, we've briefly discussed five elements of revelation and our purpose. One was our calling, two, our mission, three, our destiny, four, our need for spiritual growth, and five, our focus. So, brethren, let's pray for the kingdom to come, and be sure that you are close to our Lord and soon-coming King. It says in James 4, 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. As we see these tragedies about us, we yearn for the kingdom. We realize time is getting short. And in all the history of the world, we have never been as close to the end of this age as we are now. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. That's his message to you and me now. What is your response to that message? Can you say with all your heart, as the Apostle John did in verse 21 or verse 20, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Brethren, let's rejoice in our living, loving Savior. He has given us revelation, revelation of things that must surely take place. So let's look forward to the resurrection, to God's coming kingdom, and may we all faithfully prepare the world, the church, and ourselves for that kingdom. Thank God for His continual guidance, blessing, and revelation, and understanding as you submit yourself to Him, as you study that revelation. Did you read your Bible five minutes last evening, or five minutes
before coming services today. If you should did not, it's a flag that's saying, where are you? Are you really focused? Are you really seeking the kingdom of God? Are you going all out? Are you looking to God for guidance? Thank God for His continual guidance, blessing, and revelation. And brethren, rejoice in His blessing upon you this very Sabbath. Verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.